How's it going, guys? Yes? Excellent. I'll be preaching our sixth sermon of the day. Um, got a little bit of time left, so might as well. Look at all these pedals up here, Peter. That's impressive. <laughs> I don't know what all these do. You guys, man, I wish you could see this. It looks like a factory of pedals down here. <clears throat> My name is Garrett. For those of you guys that don't know me, uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Northeast. Uh, it's been a, a good long while since I've been up here, so I'm excited to get to, to preach on Ephesians, uh, this, the sermon series that we're in right now. We're going through uh, the book of Ephesians. We're in Ephesians 4 today, uh, 17 through 32, so we'll finish up chapter 4 today. And I think we've got after me maybe like two more weeks or something like that uh, before we're done with this series, so sad times, but we've got a really cool section of Ephesians today. Last week, you got to hear from Clay, which was so good. I mean, golly, Clay, where is that guy? What a guy, you know? What a guy, Clay. Uh, and then for that, we got to hear from Peter, also did an awesome, amazing job. Also, what a guy. You know, I don't know. Make sure that you guys feel equally loved by me. Um, but yeah, we've gotten to hear from some people that don't typically get to, to get up and preach here. Another thing I love about our church is that we do that kind of stuff. Uh, even though I would say like we let people that don't have as much experience preach, uh, preaching preach, but really they're preaching just as good, if not better than the people that normally preach. So, I mean, you can't really tell the difference, uh, especially Ronnie. So, <clears throat> so uh, yeah, if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles or navigate to that on your phone, we're going to be in Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. I'll be reading out of the NIV. Um, even though it's not my preferred translation, I know it's the most common one, so I'm just going to read out of that for you guys. We're going to read this whole section together and then hop right into it. Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. Paul says this, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for, for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Yeah, amen. You know, I think 
it, it's easy sometimes considering um, you know how long ago these texts were written and how specific this was to a, a specific group of people uh, existing roughly 2,000 years ago. Um, it's easy sometimes to, to think of these things a little bit too much in a historical context and a little bit too little in the sense of something that is written to me or for me. Because you might say, some of the smart ones of us might say, it's not really written to you. It's written to the Ephesians, correct? And that's really good. That's very wise and true. Um, but I've been reading in the screw tape letters with C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis uh, just knocks on the historical perspective quite a bit and says that the enemy has used that uh, to his, or sorry, in the screw tape letters, he is, you know, uh, a, 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 like a, a force for Satan. He's a demon, right? And he's writing about the enemy, which is God. I don't want to confuse you too much because we start to use double negatives. But let's just say, in general, sometimes we can look at these texts and be guilty of not personalizing them, correct? We can be guilty of saying, well, surely he's not writing to someone like me. Whenever he says, you know, to do this or don't do this, he's writing to them. He is writing to a Christian church. <laughs> and you are a Christian church. And so he is, in fact, meaning, I think, or rather, you might say God intends for us to hear this message for ourselves personally. Because the, the word of God is living and that's right. And it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of your heart. The question is, do you allow it to do that, or do you keep it at arm's length in these things? Really, and this is an interesting decision on my part. I'm not going to defend it. I'm just going to say this is what I decided. Uh, but I really want to focus most on these first two verses of this rather lengthy passage, because it's pretty deep. In fact, Many of us, another thing that we're really good at uh, doing in Scripture is reading Scripture and immediately forgetting it or thinking we understand it when we don't. Okay? Have you ever done that? It's like whenever I'll read through a gospel of someone and Jesus says something like, now if that light behind your eyes is darkness, how dark will that darkness be? And they're like, got it. And I'm like, what's it mean? Go ahead. Spell it out for me. They're like, I don't actually have any clue. I've never, never thought about that. What if Jesus says, like, everyone is going to be salted with fire? Okay, moving on. Blah, blah, blah. Jesus said that. What's it mean? Right? It's obvious that we don't know what it means. And Paul does the same thing here to you. He pulls a really fast one on you because he uses words you recognize, but you don't understand what he's talking about. Watch. I'll say it to you. You tell me, you tell me whether you think it know, you know what it means. You ready? They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Have, what? Excuse me? They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. So, what does that mean? You might get like the general shape of it, right? They do bad stuff. And that means they don't get God and do God's stuff. But perhaps it means something deeper than that. Perhaps it's meant Paul is not just kind of like flying off the handle about people that don't know God. Perhaps he's meaning to inform the church in Ephesus of some, some state that he sees in them that they are not making themselves aware of, right? So the first part, and I, I'm, just gonna, I'm gonna break this down into to three parts. Uh, but part one is just verses 17 through 19. And Paul is simply saying, in, in the most broad sense, that you can't live like the world does. 
right? He's pointing out to the church in Ephesus, which is, um, you know, not a godly city, certainly not having a, a rooting uh, or, or any kind of establishment in Christian tradition, let alone Jewish tradition of monotheism. But Paul is reminding the church there that they're meant to look and live differently than the world. But his logic is, is kind of difficult to follow, so we're going to try to follow it along. And just stop there for a moment. You're meant to look and live differently than the world, right? If we were to take a percentage of your life that looked like the world's, what's it going to be at? Anyone in here want to say it's 50% or less? Okay, maybe. My man. 20% or less? 10% or less? You'd have to be real different, right? So wait a second, you're called to look and to live really differently. How differently? Well, Jesus lived real differently. But you're not Jesus, right? You're not meant to only live and do public ministry for three years and then die on the cross, right? What about the apostles who regularly stood up in front of people and said, guess what, guys, you murdered Jesus. And you all need to repent and hear the good news that God's not going to count it against you going around, handing out their possessions to anyone as they had need, traveling with that good news. They looked different. Are you supposed to look like that? Why not? Does it give you any indigestion whatsoever to read this, to look at it and say, wait a second, I don't look significantly different than the world. I wear the same clothes. I drive cars. I do work the way that they do. I go to church, but then again, most people go to church in Texas. Wait a second. I sound like them. My financial goals are roughly the same as their financial goals. My relationships are kind of like their relationships. Is anybody else as worried as I am about this? So that's the kind of stuff that keeps me awake at night. It makes me want to say, yeah, God, but like how different? But really my main question is, how different can I get away with? Because I'd like for it to be as similar as possible. When I evaluate my heart on that, that's where I'm at with it. Likewise, if you can't read, if you read scripture and you don't get heartburn, something's missing. <laughs> scripture is meant to convict. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't often find myself in scripture reading it and being like, nailed it. <laughs> Even me. I know you probably think I do, but it's not true. No. I'm usually reading it and I'm like, man, this is, this is kind of rough because... Yeah, I don't do that at all. <laughs> I don't just, have you noticed how I'm not completely humble and gentle? <laughs> Interesting. That's weird. Starting to feel like maybe it's about me. <laughs> Something, I got a sneaky suspicion that this is supposed to mean that I need to change my heart and my life. I don't, I don't know. We'll find out. But in short... This, this section of scripture, I think Paul is meaning to say something along the lines of, it starts with a hard heart, and that that hard heart leads you to ignorance, or a darkness in your thinking, as he calls it, and then that darkness or ignorance, that leads you to a life that's separated from God and thus futile. That's kind of the shape that I'm seeing here, hard-heartedness, to ignorance, to futility of life, separated from God. That's the kind of, I think, the pattern that he's pointing out. 
I asked this question at SMU Focus a few weeks ago, like what is the heart? Like what is the heart, like from a biblical perspective? And you get all kinds of answers around that, right? And my question back to them was, does it kind of bother you that this thing that's supposed to be at the center of your being, you don't even really know how to just describe in a single sentence? They're like, yeah, I guess that is kind of problematic. The same thing exists here when we talk about hard-heartedness. Like, what does it mean to be hard-hearted? Do you have to be, like, intentionally, willfully against God? Is that something that happens whenever it's like you've decided not to follow God? Are only unbelievers uh, capable of being hard-hearted? I don't think so. The word that's used for hard-hearted clay in the Greek is the same word that's used of bone that calcifies after a fracture. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? I know. I know, Clay. <laughs> Just joking. If you guys don't know why I'm ragging on Clay, it's because he made fun of using Greek words last week, which I thought was actually really good and timely. So anyway, it's the same word that's used of calcified bone over, or calcified bone over fractured bones. This hard-heartedness is basically a numbness that's created in us because of sin. And that sin doesn't necessarily have to be this action-oriented sin. It can just be a sin of the, of the mind. It can be selfish thinking. It can be lust that's been unchecked, greed that's been unchecked. He specifically mentions greed here. And I'd be remiss to not point out this new quote that I love from C.S. Lewis from the Screwtape Letters where he says, Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, when in reality, it's finding his place in him. Ooh. Ugh. That's tough, man. I know. Yeah. That's tough. It's a numbness that's created from sin. That's hard-heartedness. It's very rarely something that you are intentionally doing. Have you ever committed sin, even knowingly or willfully, and felt numb about it? Most of us then seek an external way to numb. Alcohol, drugs, pornography, sex, any number of different things that we use to numb ourselves further because of the pain that we feel because of it. You have a fractured bone there. That's kind of what the point is. Anyone felt that before? Anyone feeling it now? Yeah. You know, June has had a real rough go of it. June is my daughter. She's had a real rough go of it these past couple weeks. <clears throat> June has been tough, man. She's, she's got herself uh, a hill to climb in the world. And she reminds, her, she reminds me a lot of myself. And, I, you know, Tori talked about showing emotion during one of our staff meetings the other week about how she hates it. She's like, you guys never do that. And I was like, I cry consistently anytime that I'm up in front of people. I don't even know what you've been seeing. I would just choose not to tell stories like this if I didn't want to do that. I don't want to, but I will because I think it's helpful. But June struggles with hard-heartedness. She just gets angry for no reason most of the time. Today she said, and I quote, I love only me. <laughs> it is literally, she says what we all feel. She said that. She even said, I forgive only me. <laughs> and I was like, golly, this girl is going to be the death of me. So last week, I'm like trying to figure it out because, you know, like the being strict with her just doesn't work. She just gets angrier. 
okay? So I've been thinking through, like, how do I minister to this girl? So the other, like this last Sunday, not this Sunday, but this last Sunday, I, I went on a little ride with her and just talked with her about a hard heart and what a soft heart was and what a hard heart was. And she said all kinds of bad stuff during this conversation, okay? I'm not even going to get into the things that she said during this conversation. Um, but she was honest and open and she told me about it. And I just kept trying to drill down like, sweetheart, when you have a hard heart, I know that it, it might feel good for a little bit, but ultimately it's going to lead to death. And, you know, this is what leads to life. And she's four, by the way. And some, I'm just like, this girl's not hearing anything. I feel like I'm beating a drum she will never hear. Anyway, I'm having lunch with Grant the other day, Grant Beal. And Grant was like, you know, June said something to me in class. Uh, the other day. She said, and I can't remember exactly how he framed it. I would have you do it, Grant, but I know you'd be mortified to stand up and have to share that. So um, she said something on the lines of like, you know, I had a, I had a hard heart, but now I'm going to have a soft heart or something like that. And I was like, dude, something might work. It might work a little bit. But you all know what it's like to have that hard heart. It's this kind of, uh, it's just a numbs. You can't feel. You can't really sense God. You don't sense love. You don't sense a softness around your, your actions, your behaviors, and other people as well. It limits your ability to love. And Paul seems to suggest that a hard heart creates ignorance, or what he called darkened understanding. I've noticed that when people in the West talk about their heart, or sorry, their thoughts and intellect, they rarely involve their hearts. And yet this is a very common concept in scripture. Real intelligence that doesn't include the heart is not real intelligence. Sorry, that's not the way God made you. Look around at the world. Humans are not first and foremost thinking beings. We are first and foremost feeling beings. Okay, And understanding the heart is a a necessity to actually having anything resembling wisdom or true intellect. From what I read in scripture and have experienced in my life, I tend to think that what happens in the heart or the center of our being uh, shapes what happens in the mind. I sense that for many Christians, however, there's a disconnect between their hearts and their minds, as if they could ignore sin in their lives and still claim wisdom or have a callous heart or still consider themselves intelligent. And I think that could only really happen in a culture that's forgotten that wisdom and true intellect emanates from God alone. And that only those with a soft heart can really know God and have wisdom. All other forms of intelligence may pass as intelligence now, but in the end they'll be exposed for what they truly are. Paul is saying the same thing here. As a third step, you know, we talked about that, you know, hard heart leading to ignorance or a darkening of an understanding of what's really going on in self and the world around them. The third step Paul mentions here is a kind of ignorance that alienates us from the life of God. When my heart becomes callous to my own sin, my thoughts become disconnected from God's thoughts and his ways. And as a result, my life becomes more and more unlike Christ's life. So if you live a life very similar to the world, you might be now trying to retrace your steps a little bit. If I live a life that doesn't look like Christ's, what have my thoughts been like? Have they been rooted on worldly things or on God's things? Are they on myself or are they on others, right? And if so, have I become callous? Maybe my heart's hard a little bit. 
Have I become callous to what God is doing in my heart? What he's been telling me at a heart level that I've been rejecting for a long time. We are regularly accusing God of not listening to us or not speaking to us, right? I think about how often I try to speak to my daughter and that girl is not listening. (laughs) She's doing all kinds of things other than listening. It's the same way with us, I think. So consider for a moment, do you confess your sin? Are you vigilant about maintaining a soft heart before God and people? If not, that could be the reason that your thoughts tend towards a great many things other than the kingdom. Could it be the reason that your life looks so similar to those who have been similarly darkened in their understanding? The way it may play out in terms of like, uh, as an example, could look like this. A believer begins to allow sin to enter his life, a simple kind of normal sin, like surfing social media and comparing himself to people or maybe sexualizing them in some way. He doesn't recognize that as sin, nor does he confess that as sin, or maybe he just ignores it altogether. So he begins to become numb to what he is doing and what he is thinking. That numbness does not just numb his heart. You're not permitted to disconnect your heart and your mind like that. It actually numbs his mind as well, and his thoughts become increasingly self-centered, increasingly in need of surfing more and more to get something that he feels that he wants or needs. The things he starts to think are more and more, uh, more and more about are less and less about God, love, the kingdom, mission, and why he's really here in the first place. He's become darkened in his understanding. And finally, he becomes just like everyone else in the world, locked in a selfish quest to gratify his own wants and desires, to satiate his appetite, disconnected from the life of God, which is by its very nature, self-giving, sacrificial, vibrant, purposeful, etc. So he wakes up in the morning, he goes to work, Throughout the day, he does his thing. He comes back home. He's too tired to go be with other people. He's too tired to go live in right community. He doesn't actually think about building the kingdom in any real way. He is just doing what everyone else does, which is existing. And he's doing it with a numb heart and with a darkened mind. If that sounds anything else, if that sounds like you at all, I say to you, Put off the old self, which is the next thing that that Paul says about us. If you hear nothing else from that section here, Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Part two is this, verse 20 through 24, where Paul just says, put off the old self and put on the new self. I love that we follow a God who's so willing to believe and want the best in us that he doesn't do what so many of sports players do these days to their haters, which is keep receipts. You heard that term, people keeping receipts about people that doubted, that doubted them, people that thought that they couldn't do it or whatever. God does not take receipts, thankfully, about that, because if he did, oh, we would have a lot to pay. Instead, he urges us to live in freedom and the truth that he purchased us And he pleads with us, don't revert back to your old way of living. Do you remember, actually, this this bears on this conversation. In Revelation, what does Jesus say to the church in Ephesus? Think about that. You all got that. I'll move on. Um, (laughs) 
Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, you guys have worked real hard. You've stuck around. You believe the right stuff. You haven't put up with false teachers. But I have this against you. I've had this against you. You've left your first love. Repent and do the things that you did at first. That's what he says. He says, put off your old self. Put on your new self. And how good, you talk about the gospel. Gospel means good news, right? How cool is it that we serve a God that the good news is you can leave behind your old self. You can, you can just slough it off like old dead skin and be made new. Praise the Lord. I don't see any good people in here. I don't see any good old selves in here. If you think of yourself as that, I would encourage you to repent. Because <laughs> you aren't good. I'm not good. God is good and he invites you to put on the new self. If you are a Christian who has been living like your old self, repent and do the things you did at first and put on the new self. Wake back up. Wake up. See what your heart is doing. Repent, walk into the light and live a new life. How cool that God invites us to that again. Paul's not just talking, Paul's not even speaking to non-Christians. He's speaking specifically to Christians and he's reminding them because apparently this is something we do. We go back to our vomit. We go back to our old life. Do not do that. Walk back in the newness of life again. He says our old way of life is being corrupted by deceitful desires. Well, what are your deceitful desires that you have been not paying close attention to? They're the things that we wanted that promised us life and didn't deliver in the first place. And we think maybe they will this time. Money we thought would give us security. Power we thought would give us control. Recognition we thought would prove our value. Comfort. Relationships that we thought would make us whole. All of these things are deceitful desires that took us further and further away from the new person God wanted to make us to be. And he also says that we're meant to be made new in the attitude of our minds. And unfortunately, I don't think that's a great translation because he actually says to be made new in the spirit of your minds. Feel free to go and look that up, by the way. What the heck is a spirit of a mind? (laughs) All I know is that the word spirit means breath. It's the same word that's used of the Holy Spirit, a wind, a breath. He says... Let the breath of God breathe into your minds and that will change you and make a new self. Let the Holy Spirit reanimate you is his, I think, my best guess at what he's saying. It's not merely a matter of thinking. It's a matter of God's breath being put into us anew in Christ. It's the gift that allows us to put on the new self in the first place and to join God in righteousness and holiness, he says. Righteousness because we choose to walk in the light, confessing our sins and maintaining a soft heart. Then we get to be in right standing with God, which is righteousness. Notice how righteousness does not mean you're a great person. It means you walk in the light. It means you confess. It means you humbly submit to the Lord that you are a big jerk. Selfish lacking in any form of goodness and in your own right. That's righteousness. To be in right standing with God, you must not be standing at all. You have to be kneeling before God. That's right standing before God. 
And then he also says holiness, because you are created to be set apart, different from the world, different from its desires, and different from the way it lives. Are you living differently? If you want to know whether you're living as your old self or your new self, ask yourself the question, is my heart soft and is my life different? That'd be a great way to know whether you're actually living as a new self or or old self. Is your heart soft and is your life different than other people around you? As promised, we're going to go through part three here, which is the big chunk of the scripture, 25 through 32. And I love it so much because you know me, I'm not really great at delivering practicals. And Paul does it for us here. Thank God that Paul does that for us. So I'm just going to finish this sermon by reading his practicals. That's why he says, therefore, at the end. Since you know this about what leads to sin, remember, hard-heartedness to ignorance to futile living, right? Since you know you don't, you're not called to that, that you're, live, you're called to live a new, as a new self and a new life. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful for their own, with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. I'm going to say a prayer for us. Father, you are so good to us. We are so thankful for your gift of grace. I pray that as a church, God, we would be a people that continually are putting on the new self and rejecting the old self. God, I pray for those of us with darkened understanding, Father, those of us that are living life in futility the way that the world lives it. I pray that you would soften our hearts, God, that you would help us to confess and to walk into the light, to live a repentant life of humility, Lord, and that you would help us to look different. And that by our love that the world would recognize us. We love you. We thank you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys go in peace.